You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about him. Good morning. Uh, Today's passage is John chapter 5, verses 30 through 47. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, His form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have sent your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? We're in John chapter 5. Go ahead and turn there if you haven't yet. My name is Joey. If you're new here, I'm one of the pastors here. It's my honor to typically preach God's word on Sunday when we are together. And uh, I'm excited for this uh, passage today. Jesus is continuing his dialogue with these critics in his community who are challenging his claims, his assertions that he is God. He has said previously that the Father is working, so I am working. That's why he healed a man on the Sabbath, which is a huge no-no for them according to their man-made traditions in this time. And so Jesus says, the Father is working, I am working. They challenge that claim because it's an obvious claim to divinity. And so Jesus now for this chapter 5, John chapter 5, is defending his divinity, that he is actually God, that he is the extension of God on earth, the true Son of God, the true representative of God. You want to know who God is? You look at Jesus. You look no further because he is the very image of God, the very very representation of God. So here's what we're going to see today as we march through our passage. Jesus is going to offer more defense, more proof for his divinity. He is going to defend his claims that he is in fact God, but he's also going to show in his critics and therefore in us why we still refuse those claims, why we still reject those claims, why they don't move to the center of our lives and have the final say. And then he's going to give his response to our rejection. What is, what is G, what's God going to do when we reject him? What's, what's, uh, what's that going to be like? What's his ways? That's what we're going to find out today. Proofs for his divinity, why we reject his divinity, Jesus' response to our rejection of him. So with that said, let's bow our heads together and ask God to be with us right now. Father, we come to you, and Lord, this, this sermon is a serious sermon because there is some level of our lives where we have not let you be God. Father, we confess that we treat others as God. We treat ourselves as God. We treat pleasures and pursuits and ambitions as God. We treat other things in a way that only you deserve. You have all authority. You have that status alone. You are creator. You are final judge. 
you are Savior. And Lord, we confess that we far too often look to other things, other people to be our Savior, to give us significance, to give us meaning. And so Lord, we come to you now asking that you help us because we have this strong tendency to pull away from you, to trust in other things. We ask that you would forgive us, God, and we thank you for Christ, even right now, because we know as much as we pray, God, we have these things, we confess these things, we ask for forgiveness, we are forgiven. Anyone who confesses that Jesus is Christ is forgiven. And so, Lord, we rejoice that we can approach your throne of grace right now. We can approach you, holy, holy, holy God, and find grace and mercy in our time of need. That's what we need right now, Lord. We need you to heal our hearts, mend our hearts, teach us, convict us, and guide us into the way of righteousness, a way that is pleasing to you and a way that is pleasing to us. God, help us to do this today. We need you. Amen. So like I said, Jesus is continuing this discussion that he's having with his critics. He's claiming that he is divine, which means he is the extension of God on earth. To see Jesus is to see God. To believe in Jesus is to believe in God. To reject Jesus is to reject God because Jesus is God. So now he continues to explain what this means even more, what his divinity is. Look at verse 30. He starts by saying this, I can do nothing on my own, As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who has sent me. So Jesus acts, his doing, his speaking, he acts in accordance with the Father. As he hears, he does. And what does he do as he hears? What specifically is he emphasizing right now that he does in accordance with the Father? He judges justly. What this means is he tells people, Jesus as God, tells people where they stand in relationship to God. He sees people for who they really are. He knows the state of their hearts. He issues his verdict on where they stand and where they are going. To say this, to say that he has that perception and that authority to issue that kind of verdict, that judgment, that is something reserved for God alone. Only God has that title. Only God has that kind of authority. So what gives Jesus the right to say such a thing, to make such a claim? Now he's acting in perfect accordance with the Father and judging on his behalf. That's for God alone to do. So Jesus is God. What gives Jesus the gumption to say such a thing? So now he's going to begin to defend himself, to defend his divinity. Verses 31 through 32. Here we go. He says, if I alone bear witness about myself... My testimony is not true, meaning we can say what we want all day long about ourselves, but we need witnesses. We need someone, something to testify to, to, um, to back up what we say, right? He says, there is another who bears witness about me. I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. So right now he's speaking about the father. The father bears witness about the son, gives proof. The father gives proof about the son and his claims and backs him up. So what's the, what is the first proof that the father gives Verse 33 through 35, it's John the Baptist. He says, you sent to John. And he has borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony that I receive receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So that he's saying, you listened to John the Baptist. When John the Baptist showed up on the scene in his public ministry, you critics, you Jewish community flocked to him. You were so excited about him, about his message he was heralding. But he's saying, do you know why John the Baptist was sent? Do you know John the Baptist's purpose in his mission? See, John, we forget this. He's so important biblically. We don't talk about John the Baptist much because he was there today, gone the next day. He, was, he died and was forgotten. That was his purpose, though. His purpose was to be the forerunner to Christ, to bridge this gap between the old covenant and the new covenant, to usher in a new life, a new era that is found in Jesus the Messiah, who is God. So John the Baptist, he really is on his ministry is the hinge point of all of history. It's the closing of a chapter and opening of a new chapter. It's a really exceptional, unique position in all of history that John the Baptist serves. So everyone knows he's a prophet. Everyone knows that what he's doing is something really incredible, really special. And Jesus is saying, he was purposed to exalt me. John came to prepare your hearts for my ministry. And you accepted him for a little while. And now Jesus digs in a little deeper. He says, in the fact that John the Baptist was sent, 
You should know that he was sent for my sake, for Jesus' sake, to get behind his divine ministry, because actually in verse 35 where he says that he was a burning and a shining lamp that you were willing to rejoice in for a little while in that light, that's actually an illusion, illusion to Psalm chapter 137. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but you can go there later and you'll see that it's an allusion to Psalm 137. Jesus is saying, not only did the Father give you John the Baptist, as evidence, as witness that I am divine, but he has also given you the Old Testament scriptures, which point to John the Baptist, which should get you to know and convince you that John really is preparing you for me. That's not all, though. So we have John the Baptist, we have the Old Testament, but also he moves to his miracles and his teaching. Look at verse 36. He says, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works the activity that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, they bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. So he's referring to his miracles and his teachings. Now let me ask you a question. Do you know why Jesus came performing signs and wonders? Why Jesus came healing the blind and casting out demons and healing a man who was an invalid on the Sabbath? Why Jesus countless times performs these amazing miracles? It's because those miracles give his words credence. Jesus' teachings would, would lose their force, really. I mean, they're incredible teachings, but that Jesus performed these amazing miracles should give this impact to his teachings. That's what he's saying here. The Father's clear, Jesus is saying, the Father is clearly in support of my claims, in support of my ministry, because no one else can do the things that I am doing. So this is why later on, even in the book of John, when there's much division over who Jesus is, some people say, when the Messiah comes, will they do more miracles than even this man? Surely not. So really, the Father is behind Jesus' ministry. Look no further than John the Baptist. Look no further than what the Old Testament teaches. And look no further than his miracles, which back up his teachings and his claims. Now, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? What Jesus is doing here is he is giving an argument for his divinity, right? Right? Now, let me tell you, his argument is important. You should know it. You should know exactly why all this works together to support the fact, the claim that Jesus is God. But if you take this argument with you, you will find that it is not very effective uh, in your common circles. The wrong takeaway here, the wrong takeaway, is to simply just adopt the argument. The argument's important, but really what we should see here is the model the model of Jesus' ministry. What's he doing here with his critics? What's he doing here with those that he is engaging in discussion? What he's doing is he's finding common ground. He's finding common ground. See, his current audience, they believe in the Old Testament. They are excited about John the Baptist. They're open to miracles. There's an openness to miracles. So Jesus is finding common ground with his critics, and he's establishing his claims, his divinity, on the basis of what they have in common. But today, you have to understand that the common person you talk to has no religion, and they have no faith. So this argument, although you should know it, it's good. It won't necessarily work for you. But what what will work for you? is Jesus' model. Find common ground. Find common ground with those around you. Because they don't share the same presuppositions as you. They don't necessarily care what the Bible teaches. They don't care what the Old Testament records. They don't care about Jesus' miracles. They doubt those things anyway. So you have to find common ground according to Jesus' model. So what is the common ground you should find with people today? People without faith, people without religion, which is your neighbor which is most people around you at your workplace. What common ground do we have? Where can we start with people who are far from God? Here's what you do. Here's the common ground. Art, beauty, creation, justice. It's those kinds of things in the human experience that's going to be the common ground that you start on that gets you to that conversation about Jesus being God. So don't just adopt Jesus's argument. Know the argument, but adopt Jesus's model. Do whatever it takes to find common ground. So let me talk about this a little more. Art, beauty, creation, justice. Those are the things that you need to to find common ground with your neighbors about. The reason why those things work, okay, 
is because we are not, especially right now today in our cultural moment, we are not creatures of logic. We are creatures of emotion. We use emotion to make decisions. We use emotions to make commitments, not rationale, not logic. And in fact, what we do is we use our logic to justify our emotional decisions, right? So art, beauty, landscapes, culture, film, music, food, storytelling, all of those things are emotionally transcendent experiences, aren't they? They point to something greater. They serve as shadows of a substance. And justice, I'd mentioned justice. The whole world demands justice. The whole world has heartache over the grievous, awful, wicked things that we see day to day. We want a justice, a satisfying form of justice that's consistent, that's fair, that's without hypocrisy. And so when you live in the human experience long enough, it provokes curiosity and wonder and zeal. And over time, no matter how much you rationalize that there is no God or that God can't be known, your human experience is telling you something totally different. Your heart and your imagination begin to weaken your arguments against God. No matter what you think or rationalize, your heart begins to tell you that there is something more. The human experience just tells us that there is something more. So listen, start there. That's Jesus' model. Find common ground with those around you based on what's already, what's already agreed upon. What's agreed upon is the human experience. And so the more that you, the more you appreciate these things, art, beauty, culture, landscapes, creation, justice, the more you appreciate these things, the better that you will be at asking good questions that surface these longings, that show that these longings only make sense in reference to God. This is what Proverbs 20 verse 5 says, the purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but the man of understanding will draw it out. You are to be that person of understanding. How do you gain understanding about, about these things? By appreciating them, by living them, by caring, by thinking about by being moved by them. The more that you experience these things yourself, the better you will be at asking good questions. The better you will be at having productive, winsome dialogue with those around you who have no faith and no religion at all. And so once you have that common ground, that these things that we feel, that we, that we just can't shake in our human experience, they only make sense with reference to God. Once you establish that common ground, now, friends, you can make a, an argument for the Christian faith. Now, you can make an argument that Jesus' claims make a ton of sense. So let me go ahead and just throw three main things that if you're here and you are, an un, if you're curious, seeking, investigating the claims of Christianity, here's what I would ask you to consider. And here, if you're a believer who wants to be effective in your ministry, put these things in your tool belt. These are what I want to equip you with now as you have dialogue with people, as you find common ground with people. Here are the three things I'd ask you to consider as you move into the world, as you consider the claims of Christianity. First, I ask you to consider the Bible itself. The manuscript evidence that the Bible has is overwhelming, meaning over the course of time, we have dug up so many ancient manuscripts that verify that the Bible that we have in our hands today is, has been preserved so well. What we have is, is nearly identical to the original manuscripts that the people in Corinth, the people in Ephesus, the people in, in Jerusalem would be reading in their hands. We have total confidence that the Bible isn't a fraud. Uh, it's not something that's been changed over time because manuscript evidence that we have found verifies that what we have is so, so, so nearly identical to the originals. The, the manuscript evidence is overwhelming. The historical attestation of the Bible, it's unmatched, meaning other worldviews, other systems of belief, the divine revelation that they have written uh, were received in secret. In a, in a cave, uh, alone with like an angel, an intermediator. Christianity, this is really, really, really exclusive to Christianity. Christianity alone is divine revelation that was recorded publicly throughout history. That's interesting, isn't it? We didn't what you read in the Bible wasn't received just in a cave in one day, and then, and then that's it. 
What we have in our hands with the Bible is something that was documented as it was observed through human eyes and human history over the course of time. It really is unmatched in its historicity. And secondly, I'll say this too, other religions that were originated in secret, you know, uh, resulted in power plays for political and cultural power grabs. But the Christian faith, think about this, there's no power play in the Christian faith. In fact, it's the opposite. Uh, the play, the Christian play is to die to self, to love neighbor, to serve God. Uh, so it's very, very different than all other systems of belief, all other sorts of divine revelation that are, that are claimed to be in existence. Uh, something else about the Bible, which I would want you to know, is that there's the continuity and the coherence of the Bible. It's really, really impressive, meaning there are no contradictions in the story of the Bible. It's sustained across 4,000 years with major themes, promises that all come to realization in Jesus and in the new era that he launched. I remember our missionary in Sweden, BJ, who's, who's coming into contact with all other sorts of faith groups, all other sorts of faith groups in his ministry in Sweden as refugees are, are there's an influx of refugees coming into Sweden. And he is reading all these other documents that these other faith groups have. And he tells me, Joey, you know, something that's really bolstered my faith, my confidence in, in, in Jesus as God and Christianity, it's, it's how true it is, is the Bible just reads different. You read, the, you read these other the documents from other religions, and it just is very, it's just mere rules. It just feels like propaganda. But the Bible, it just reads differently. It reads like this very sophisticated, profound work of literature and revelation that's taken place over the course of centuries. It just reads different. So first, I ask you to consider the Bible. Second, I ask you to consider the resurrection the resurrection is, is, is really the fulcrum of the truth of Christianity, the fulcrum of the truth of Jesus' claims. So here's what I want to start with uh, telling you. Josephus was a Jew in Jesus' day, not a Christian, a Jew. And he documents in his writings that the grave was, in fact, empty. Jesus' body was no longer in the grave. And he's just one of several people who can attest to that historically. We know that it's a historical reality that the grave was, in fact, empty. Jesus was not in it on the third day. And so what conclusions did we come to then? How did that happen? Here's our options. One, the disciples could have stolen the body. That was the story that was circulated at that time. But here's the problem with that theory that the disciples stole the body. That would have been way outside their imagination, That would have been way outside anything they would have ever thought of because the disciples, like their Jewish contemporaries, thought resurrection would happen way at the end of time. Uh, And they thought that the Messiah would be a warrior king like David who would reestablish Israel in, in, in glory. They didn't think it would be a resurrection that would happen in the middle of time that would produce a community that would serve people, love people to their own detriment. So it just doesn't make sense that the disciples stole the body for something that they would never imagine. It just doesn't add up. And you need to also ask, what did they gain? Like, if this is a lie, if this is a lie that they made up to start something new, what's in it for them? They had no power. They were not wealthy. They were not popular. In fact, it's all the opposite. They were in poverty. They were alone. They were rejected. They were in danger. Would they do that for a lie? I mean, 10 of the 11 original apostles died gruesome deaths. I mean, maybe one, two would would keep their mouth shut, but all of them to the point of death live for a lie? I don't think so. The other thing that, that critics sometimes throw out there is, okay, okay, I hear that argument. Maybe the disciples hallucinated. Maybe they had this mass hysteria hallucination where they think they saw Jesus, but it really wasn't, and, and you know, that's, that's what happened. Again, maybe one, maybe two, but all of them? Seeing the exact same thing, writing the exact same thing, all in agreement without contradiction? Not possible. Third thing people say is maybe Jesus tricked them. Maybe Jesus tricked all of us. Maybe somehow he faked his death Maybe somehow he exited the tomb, and that's the, that, that's the story. It's rigged. There's a few problems with that because the Romans were very, 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 very good at killing. The Romans were very good at confirming death. So when they spear Jesus on the cross after torturing him brutally, uh, they confirm he's dead. And it would be very, very, very exceptional for them to mess that up. But let's say they did. Let's go ahead and say that they somehow overlooked it, that Jesus duped them, as Jesus somehow faked his death, he's been put in an air-sealed tomb for three days, being beaten to an inch of his life. 
being speared on a Roman cross. Three days without oxygen, at that point where you're hanging on a thread, you're not going to make it. But let's say he makes it anyway. Let's say somehow he overcomes all those odds, removes a huge massive stone, gets past the guards that are there, and shows up to the disciples and, and, and tricks them and says, ah, I did it. So here's Jesus showing up looking like, you know, hamburger meat, looking like a lunatic. Do you think that these men are going to say, you're God? <laughs> no, they're going to say, you're nuts. And so it just does not add up. What, seem, what, what is obviously an objective historical reality that the grave was empty, you can't get around other than this is God. That God in heaven resurrects God the Son to verify that his claims are true. Jesus is God. So once we establish common ground with our friends and neighbors, that the human experience requires us to believe in, in God, now we can make a case for Christianity. And I would ask you to consider the Bible. I would ask you to consider the resurrection. And I lastly would ask you to consider the flourishing effect of Christianity. I'm going to move through this quick because we have a lot to cover still. I want to ask you to consider the flourishing effect that Christianity has. It promotes justice, yet forgiveness. Those things never go together. In Christianity exclusively, it's radical, it's severe about justice, severe about judgment, but, but abundant in forgiveness. We're in short order of both today. And Christianity offers both side by side. It also promotes an identity that is durable. We'll talk about this a little bit later, but today, identity is everything. And you have to be praised, you have to be seen, you have to be applauded, you have to be liked and loved in order to be somebody, but you have to earn it, you have to position yourself, and you have to find the right audience to constantly celebrate who you are to give you that, that identity. That's not durable, but Christianity alone gives you a durable identity because Jesus has won for you God's love. See, when you believe in Jesus, you're given Jesus' righteousness. When you trust in him as your Savior, you're given his righteousness. So now the Father delights in you. He sees you as no different than his Son. So he constantly delights in you, constantly approves of you, constantly accepts you, constantly loves you. That is an identity that's durable. That is only offered in Christianity. Everything else is an identity that you have to merit and that you have to keep up. It's just too much pressure. It doesn't last. Thirdly, this flourishing effect, Christianity alone gives purpose and sense to suffering, yet also gives us permission to enjoy life. Again, those two are never side by side. You either practice asceticism, you just beat yourself into submission, either you, know, you just work yourself to the bone and you suffer in life, or you're a hedonist and you live for pleasure and you live for self. Christianity alone has these things side by side. We're going to suffer there's a point to suffering. There's sense to suffering in the Christian faith, but also God is the father of every good gift. Meals, friends, family, children, marriage, beauty, all these things come from the hand of a perfect father, and he wants us to delight in them as gifts from him. So Christianity offers these things side by side. So I'm telling you that this vision for life this comprehensive package that Jesus offers to you as God, you will only find it in the Christian faith. And that should tell you something that this, this isn't cracked up. Like this isn't man-made. This is from above. This is something transcendent. We didn't make this up. It just is too far beyond us and our mental capacities to somehow manufacture something like this. Because we tried to do it on our own and it hasn't, but it hasn't gone this way. So Jesus is God. There's proof out there. There's real proof out there that Jesus is God and the Christian faith is valid. And I'm just scratching the surface. There's so much more we could talk about. But now I want to turn our, our attention to the meat of this, which is even with all the proof staring us in the face, we still reject. There's some of us who, who reject Jesus outright. He's not God. We hold him at a distance. We're not convinced. But there's most of us here who are Christians. And at some point, level in our lives, we still don't let Jesus be God. At some level in our lives, functionally, we reject Jesus's divinity. And so Jesus is going to show now through his critics and pinpoint why we reject. Why do we reject? Verse 37, he continues and says this, his voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has Sent. So he's saying, you have ears, but you can't hear. You have eyes, but you cannot see. You have hearts, but you cannot believe. See that? 
He says, the reason why, you can't, why these, this is happening is because you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You reject me. What Jesus is saying here, he's saying that their senses are dulled. Why do we reject Jesus? Because our senses are dulled. We have eyes but don't see. We have ears but don't hear. We have hearts but don't believe. And now Jesus here is teaching this major theme that's all across the entire Bible, which is this. When we have idols in our heart, which is something that we bring to ourselves, that we find our life in, we find our significance in, we find our security in, we put our happiness in, and we have a close grip on that. That's an idol. It's something that you bow before and serve that will give you life and meaning. When we are when we are non-negotiable with that idol, it will cause us to be incapable of following Jesus. It will cause us to be incapable of believing Jesus. It will cause us to be incapable of loving Jesus. Jesus is saying our hearts are dulled simply because we prefer our lesser gods to the real God. So as long as you prefer your lesser God to your real God, you will never have the capacity to believe. You will never have the capacity to accept Jesus as God. So you might be here considering the claims of Christianity, right? But listen to me clearly. If you are not open to the possibility that Jesus is God, it will be impossible for you to see the truth because your perspective is slanted. Your commitment to not being persuaded will leave you open only to what might justify your unbelief. See, rarely... Is this not true? Rarely we seek truth. We usually seek reasons to justify what we want to be true. See, idolatry makes our eyes, ears, heart unable to perceive the truth. It causes us to be slanted in our seeking. It causes us to be slanted in what we investigate. So what this means is no matter how intellectually robust Christianity is, and it is, if it doesn't sit well with what we want, if it doesn't agree with what makes us happy, then we will be drawn to what appeals to our wants and desires. We will only have eyes to see what will justify our unbelief. I'm not saying that there aren't questions. I'm not saying that there aren't intellectual quandaries in Christianity, but I am saying that there is enough intellectual proof staring us in the face that I think to reject Jesus is usually not an intellectual thing, but an emotional thing. We know the cost, We know what we'd have to give up if Jesus was actually God. We know how much things would change if we really took up Jesus' claims. And so we don't. So Jesus is pinpointing the problem in his critics and in you and I, that we will miss out on Jesus as God, reject Jesus as God, as long as we hold our idols closer to our hearts. As long as we do that, we'll never be vulnerable and open to, to his claims. So that's one thing. Our senses are dulled. That's why we reject Jesus as God. But also, too, our motivations. Our motivations are misleading. They're wrong. Look at verses 39 and 40. He says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. See, in this time, the belief amongst the Jewish community was however much I read the Bible, however much I studied it and gave myself to to my reading of my Bible, that would merit for me eternal reward. For them, there was this, this give and take between how fervent my studies were and how great my eternal life will be. Those are their motivations for reading the Bible. What can I get from God? How can he, how can he serve me and meet me based on what I'm doing for him? So you might be floating through life right now, unaware of the fact, you might be unaware of the fact that Jesus is not God of your life. You might be mildly religious. You may have a general belief in God. You may think you're a Christian or associate with Christians, but you might not be a Christian at all if you haven't let Jesus' claim of divinity redefine your life. And the reason why this is this might be the case is because everything you are doing for God might be for the wrong reasons. So you might read your Bible because you think it will end in reward, like God owes you because you're a faithful Bible reader. Or you might serve him also that when you need something, God's obligated to give it to you. Or you might be holy and refrain from sin and be a really stellar person morally 
because you think that will earn you favor with God. Let me ask you a question. In all these examples, who's really superior? Who's really the person who has the power? Who's really the person who has set the terms? It's you. The one who is owed is you, and God must oblige. The problem with all works-based religions, the problem with that motivation in the heart that what I do will result in God having to, to get behind me and support me and give me favor, the problem with that kind of thinking is who is the God in the relationship really? You might think that God is God, but if he owes you because you have done enough, then really who's the superior one? You are. If God is obligated because of your performance, then he is in your control. God's relevance then depends on you. He is a means to your end. You get final say and you get to set the terms. We must be careful because we can be just like this intensely religious community that Jesus is speaking with in this passage. They would never imagine that they're minimizing God, yet they are as they elevate themselves, yet they are as they ask God to agree to their terms, to owe them based upon their service, owe them based upon their activity, owe them based upon their Bible reading. It's subtle, but it's crucial. Here's the question you have to wrestle with. What are your motivations for following God? What are your motivations in everything that you're doing? The intentions of our pursuit of God should, be, should not be for the sake of earning, but for the sake of receiving. See, it's interesting because the Jewish community is trying to get eternal life by what they do, by how much I read, by how much I perform. Jesus is saying that you actually get eternal life by believing, and that's it. What this means, friends, is that you can only get life from Jesus if you treat him as God. If you treat him as a means to an end, if you treat him like a servant, like a butler, like an assistant who owes you, who has to get behind your agenda and meet you in the middle based upon your performance, if he's always in your control, then you're not treating him as God and you're going to miss out the life that he has to offer. You're settling for a, a, a superficial form of life. So don't be deceived by your own heart. You might think you're doing all the right things, but if your motivations are wrong, you're being misled. You're actually not being led closer to God. You're being led farther away from God. Be sure you're coming to Jesus because he is God, not because he owes you. Not because it's time for him to pay up, but because there's nowhere else to get life. Because he is God and God alone. So we reject Jesus because our motives are misleading. Thirdly, why do we reject Jesus? Verse 41, he says this, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes only from God, that comes from only God? So it's just interesting if you're reading this, okay? If you're reading this and paying attention, Jesus does a compare and contrast, compare and contrast. He says, I don't receive the glory that comes from man, but you don't have the love of God in your heart. What this means then is that the need to not need the praise of men means that the love of God is in your heart. To not need the praise of men means the love of God is in your heart. Therefore, if the love of God is not in your heart, that means you live for the praise of men. Essentially, what Jesus is saying is you prefer a different kind of love, a love source that is found elsewhere. Jesus is saying, I don't, I don't practice that. I have found my love in the Father. I don't need the praise of other people. I don't need the love of other people. I have everything I need in the Father. Then he continues and says this, you don't receive me, but you're going to receive later false messiahs. You're going to, there's going to become, become others who, who claim to be Messiah, and you're going to receive them fully. You're going to embrace them so easily, but you reject me, who is God. What he's saying here is they will receive other false messiahs while rejecting Jesus because they like the glory that comes from others rather than the glory that comes from God. D.A. Carson is a New Testament scholar, and he explains this connection between their their openness to false messiahs and their desire for praise of men and glory. He says this, Inevitably, this meant they were open to messianic pretenders who used flattery or who panted after great reputation 
or whose values were so closely attuned to their audience that their audience felt that they were very wise or far-sighted. They were not open to the Messiah that Jesus was turning out to be. One who thought the only glory worth pursuing was the glory of God. John sums up the tragic situation of most of his fellow Jews a little farther on in John chapter 12 when he says, they loved the praise from men more than the praise from God. All in all here, Jesus is saying this, that he is so in touch, so connected to the Father's love that he needs no one else's praise and no one else's approval. Yet here are his critics who refuse to believe in him but will easily believe in later false pretenders because it will pander to their egos. It will make them feel important. It will satisfy their agenda for national glory. So do you see the problem here? Why we're going to reject Jesus? Why we typically reject Jesus as God in our lives? It's because we prefer a different glory. We want the praise of men. We want the approval of men. We care what other people think about us. They cannot accept Jesus as God because they preferred a different glory. Now, they could, okay? Here's an option on the table. They could, like Jesus, live in the glory that comes from God, which is the same thing as having the love of God in their hearts. This is what Jesus wants. It's a profound thing. In John 17, Jesus says, the glory and the love that is found between Father, Son, and Spirit, I want my followers to be lost in that, to be caught up in that. That's what Jesus wants for us, to know the love of God so deeply and profoundly that we need nothing else in life. Yet here are his critics who are set on a different kind of glory. And so they miss out on that love. They prefer a different kind of love. So let's be honest about this, though. Why would we refuse that glory, the glory of God, the love of God that's found in Jesus? Why would we reject that and prefer an alternative form, a lesser form? Why would we do that? And here's what the answer is. It's because superficial glory is easy. At least it seems easier, doesn't it? It's instant. All you have to do is get the right audience who will value the same thing as you and what you're doing. And then you just posture yourself and position yourself before them and then perform. It's just not hard to tap into superficial glory. It's just not hard to get people to commend you. On the front, there's really no cost. It's just easier. But the disadvantage to lesser glory, the glory that's found outside of the glory of God, the disadvantage is this. It doesn't last. (laughs) And it's not promised. Therefore, you're going to be bending over backwards, exhausting yourself time and time again to position yourself, to posture yourself in front of the right kind of people and get their attention so that they might love you, so that they might give you meaning. It costs you nothing on the front end. It's, it's instant. But on the back end, it leaves you exhausted. And here's the other thing about performing for the sake of getting other people's loves. It means that you don't really love other people because you're using them. And it means that they don't really love you because they're just spectators. And so you're missing out on deep, lasting, rich love in your life as long as you settle for this superficial glory. Here's also something to consider about the superficial glory. Who who cares what people think about us? Who cares what outsiders think about us because they'll die and be forgotten and so will you. They'll forget about you and then they'll lose their importance too. To live for another's praise is to participate in this never-ending cycle of posturing and positioning to be noticed till someone else more important comes along and then we do it all over again. That's one choice. And we prefer it because it's easier and it causes us to miss out the glory and the love that is found in Jesus as God. It'll keep us back from believing that he is God. But the glory that comes from God that's found in Jesus, it requires on the front end, here's the honest truth, it requires devotion. And that's hard. That's really, really hard. It requires not perfection, not perfection, but devotion. But it's unearned and it's never-ending. See, in Christ, when we trust him, he gives us an unbreakable bond to God where he looks on us with love and approval always and that bond is forged because of Christ and lasts because of Christ. 
It's truly possible in Jesus to have God's love and adoration and delight on you, set on you. No posturing, no positioning, no cycle, just ever-present, never-ending, unearned love. That's what Jesus wants for you, but you'll miss out on it as long as you do not believe that he is God, as long as you do not treat him as God. As long as you treat other people as God and give them that authority and status in your life, you will always settle for superficial glory and love. So the evidence is laid before us. Jesus has diagnosed the reasons why we might keep him at an arm's distance. So how is Jesus going to respond to us? How does he respond to us who are rejecting him? Two ways. Look at verse 45. He says this, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed in Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So remember, these critics, they're reading the Bible to earn reward in eternity. That motivation, it caused them to miss the whole message of the Old Testament. So Jesus says, he doesn't have to accuse them. What they've set their hope in, what they've put their prize in. Moses will be the one who holds them accountable. Moses will be their source of accountability. They have spent their entire lives reading his writings and they missed what he was talking about. They were totally blind to it because of their misleading motives. So Jesus knows that these men, they care about Moses more than him. So he rightfully says, if Moses can't even convince you, then I never will. Jesus says, I'll give you over to Moses. That thing that you hope in, that'll be the thing that accuses you. That'll be the thing that is the, the, the hammer and the nail at the end of time. That seals your fate. That is your doom. What Jesus is doing here is he's turning them over to their idols. He's turning them over to their preference for other glories. He's turning them over to their misleading motivations and letting it consume them. He's saying, if this is what you care about, so much so that you reject me, then you can have it. It'll be to your doom. It'll be to your doom. Now, this is what the wrath of God is. When we talk about the wrath of God, the clearest definition of the wrath of God is in Romans chapter 1, where it says that we have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for lesser things. And so it says that God hands us over to our passions. God hands us over to our thoughts. We're totally consumed by those other things that we have chosen to trust in over against God. That's what the wrath of God is. This, for this, when the Bible talks about hell and uses this imagery and symbolism, this is what it's meant to get at. That when we are in eternity, and the wrath of God is poured out on us it'll, in eternity, it's God handing us over to ourselves, to our sin, and letting it consume us for all of eternity. So that's one way this could go. And look, this is just and reasonable. Hell is the granting of your personal wish to live apart from God. This is why I've said Jesus' response, it's reasonable. So that's one option. To hand you over, to, to give you what you want. You want these other things? You want separation from Jesus? He says you may have it. That's one response of Jesus, but it's not the only. And it doesn't have to be the final. Now I want to draw your attention all the way back up to verse 34. Here's what Jesus says. Now remember, these are his critics, his dissenters. These are likely going to be the people who crucify him. These are the people who hate him, who refuse him. And he says this, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. So that you may be saved. Now it's a little phrase, but right there, you get a little, a little inside peek at the heart of God in Christ. Here's Jesus before his critics, those who oppose him, who are set against him, and he's saying, my heart is still open to you. My intention is to save you. I love God's humility. It's something we don't talk about a lot, but God is humble enough to accept his enemies. God is not so proud that he keeps those of us who hate him, who reject him, who are not interested in him at a cold arm's distance. God is so humble, so abounding in love and grace and mercy that he even still withhold, opens up his heart to those who have rejected him, who have opposed him. Friends, the, the, there's more than one option here. 
Eternity apart from Jesus, who is God, is not the only option on the table. We see here God's heart disclosed in Jesus, so that you may be saved. I will dialogue with you. I will perform miracles. I will teach, and I will eventually die for you so that you may be saved. Look, it would not be right for any of us in here to write someone else off after they refused us, after they rejected us, because really we're no different than anyone else. We're no better than anyone else. We have no right to be judge and jury of anybody else. But here's Jesus who's perfect. Here's Jesus who is God. Here's Jesus who is walking in accordance with the Father and judges justly. Here is the one singular human being who has every right to be judge and jury, every right to be judge and jury, and yet he still to his last breath, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Wow. We are so slow to forgive. We are so slow to hold out openness and second chances to people who have hurt us and rejected us. Yet here is God who made us that we might love and enjoy him. And we have preferred his creation over him himself. And he still is saying, so that you may be saved. So that you may be saved. This is the heart of God for you and I. So whether or not, if you're you're not a believer, if you're seeking and curious, just know you will find no better glory, no better love than this right here. Deep. God knows you fully and in Christ accepts you fully. That's what he's offering to you. That's what he wants you to live in. And believer, if you're here, it is possible to function in unbelief, even though you believe. It is possible to keep Jesus' claim that he is God out of central parts of our lives. But here's his heart summoning you, saying, move me. Move me into the center of your life and let me build out from there. And trust me, you'll find nothing better than me. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for the many times that we have turned our, turned our backs on you. That we've been slow to believe, slow to obey, slow to love you, slow to thank you, slow to worship you, slow to live for you. God, quicken our hearts to want you more, to trust that you are God and you know what's best and you are wise and you are good, to give our lives to you fully, to hold nothing back. And Father, we ask that you be gracious to help us do this and we know, God, that that's a prayer you want to answer. So help us, God, to live in the reality that you, Jesus, are God and that you point the way to the Father. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.